in places like America and yeah. in the UK, you will find quite a lot of people that have had the experiences that I've had. Because a lot of people living in America and the UK are migrant people, mm. and we've come here for a better life. Mm. We've, or probably we might not have come on our own, because a lot of people that I know, for example, it was their parents or their grandparents who came here on banana boats, like we like to call it in the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> but they're still migrant people, and they'll always be seen yeah. as migrant people because, I mean, you know, you know, we, we're never looked at as being belonging to... I mean, I can remember saying once to you and Shamshir that people look at you and they say to you, where are you from? Mm. And you say, I'm British, and then they're like, yeah, but where are you from? And it's always that thing that although you might have been born in Britain, you're not British. Mm. You're something else first and British second. Yeah. When that isn't really the case. If you were born in Britain, you're British, aren't you? Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantal. Tisa. And today we're joined by Lars Back, who is a sociologist at Goldsmith. Yeah, thank you for having me along. Um, so we're here to talk about your new book that you've published with Shansha Sinar called Migrant City. Yeah. How's the reception been so far? Well, great so far. It, it's It's been a, a long process writing this book. Um, we've been working on it really in, in a direct way for 10 years and working with the people who formed the kind of the, the heart of the project really over that period too. So it's, it's a book really about the story of London and, and in a way the story of, of, of our times um, but told through an engagement with the lives of 38 adult migrants through this very sort of tempestuous, torrid, difficult time. Uh, and, we, and the book sort of ends after the Brexit vote and in this kind of in-between interregnum period that we still feel like, I just still seems like we're living through. Um, so, yeah, it's been an extraordinary experiment. And in a way, Shamshu and I have tried to push our attempts at making sociology more sociable as far as we could. What does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, the, I always think of, you know, I, I've written books that are, are, are really sort of shaped by the ethnographic tradition. You know? And so the ethnography is usually thought of, I think, or usually characterised as a kind of lone and lonely process. So you're a single researcher working, you know, in the field, wherever that might be, might be around the corner, might be on a, on a distant shore. But it's sort of, it, it, it's often sort of characterised in this sort of singular way. Whereas I think the opportunity for doing research now is to think about research as being the sort of traffic of hunches, ideas, experiences that move between people. And so there was Shamshu and I involved in this project. I mean, initially there was a much larger research team, which we can talk about if you'd like to, because it'll link to an EU bit, um, although it didn't start there, actually. And then there's the 30 people that we've worked with, you know, not just as informants who we write about or you know do sociology on, um, but we tried to think about how we could work with the participants in the project in a more collaborative way. So it's the idea of a sociology with people rather than uh, sociology on people. What is your definition of ethnography? Well, yeah, good, good question. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose the thing that I, that I take as a sort of ethnographic touchstone, if you like, is to be use participation. 
okay. as its kind of key um, commitment. So it's participation in the worlds that you're trying to understand as they unfold, and in the lives that you're trying to understand as they unfold through time. So would you say it's sort of trying to overcome like an observationalist approach, like we don't want to observe? Yeah. Or we want to be more involved, but also yeah. research. Yeah, well, you can't do any kind of form of research without being involved. Yeah. You know, you know that. Yeah. You all know that. Um, it's the nature of that involvement. Okay. And I suppose the thing I've, I've always thought was uh, powerful about sort of the ethnographic, ethnographic sort of sensibility was participation over a long period of time um, and also participation in the context where those lives are unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. So it means we have to get out a bit, mm. get our shoes dirty sometimes, you know, <laughs> and and participate. And that's not always easy, you know. No. And and to do it in a way that isn't about surveillance and spying, but it's about engagement, listening, thinking, and then coming back to a dialogue, you know. So it isn't just a one-way street. Mm. I mean, that's the thing that I always found very alienating at the beginning of of being a researcher was that the sense of you know you sort of you holiday in, a, in somebody's life and then leave it. Mm. You know, and there's something about that that's always felt a bit jarring. And also leave it without really always being clear about what you're leaving with, what you're taking mm. back with you. And how we've left those people and how as we've well. Left those people. And so I think in a way that it's best the ethnographic tradition is trying to, to not do that or to do it in a way that is, is, um, is more dialogic, you know. I mean, of course, yeah, there's, there's, it, there's no protection in that uh, idea that research can be violated. You go in, you, you grab, and you run. Mm. But I've, I've, I guess uh, that idea that you can, you can reconstitute what understanding becomes and who's involved in that um, in our time, I think it's an opportunity. I mean, it's not an easy opportunity by any means, but I think it's an opportunity that's there for mm. us to think about, at least. Mm. And that's what we tried to do with this. I, I, the book really starts with a sort of um, portrayal of, of London, really, now. Um, so it's trying to think about, you know, a, a former imperial city and post-colonial city um, as a kind of environment where the relationship between the here and the elsewhere is constantly unfolding. You know, so the rather than seeing migrants as these visitors from somewhere else you know who are strangers who are foreign who don't belong who need to be explained and charlene captures it so well and she says you know well where are you from where are you really from R rather than thinking about what might be at stake in trying to understand those lives in that way think, okay well maybe what though the people that we're listening to in this case are carrying in their right is almost like an index or a series of traces of the relationship between this place and other places around the world. You know, so mm -hmm. in, in a way, we, what we've tried to do, I think, is to show how the experience of London and the people who live here, is regardless of who they are, is profoundly, you know, once and for all, always been implicated with connections elsewhere. But the big, one of the big ideas that we start with is on the one hand, yeah, of course, that sort of charms with the idea that it's a more in interconnected world than ever before. Yeah, that's true. The nature of those inter interconnections are changing. The speed of them 
the traffic of them is changing. Yet at the same time, you know, it's a profoundly divided period of human history. So we develop this idea of a divided connectedness. It seems contradictory, but you know, I, th I think is part of the condition of, of London life, not just for migrants, yeah, but for everyone. Times of divided connectedness. It, this is this is one of the things I've seen. So I know I grew I grew up in a multicultural, definitely grew up in a multicultural. So all different types of people living side by side. Mm. However, I can still have friends who are ultra right wing, yeah. super racist. Mm. But they're my friends. It, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense, and that's the reality of the world. Mm. But because it's so messy, people it's easier to fall into the kind of the ideas of homogenous groups because it's easier to explain to understand the world. I feel safer with people of my own, mm. and this is the kind of logic that people are seeing or deploying. I feel safer with X group mm. than I do with all this kind of tangled up mess. And this is what the far right kind of exploited. Oh yeah, totally. And they, they, they exploited that sort of tyranny of simplicity. But that simplicity is what people in a world of interconnectedness and speed and change yeah. is so rapid and the kind of idea that everyone's so living in kind of precarious times and insecurity, mm. that simplicity appeals. No, it does appeal for some people. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing, I, the big thing I really learned from doing this project, or just it's been, it was a great thing to do actually, just to be involved in, um, was that, yeah, that might be true for some, but it's not true for everyone. And the thing that was, that I hope we've managed to, to describe and convey and value actually, is, is the kind of sense of pride that some of the participants felt at the places that they lived, you know, and they didn't, they weren't, they felt pride in those places without being suspicious of strangers, whoever they might be. And a kind of an, eth an ethic, an ethos of multicultural, if you like, that's, that's very ordinary and, and sort of unspectacular, actually. I mean, one of the characters one of the participants uh, who's referred to as easy that's not mm -hmm. her name but she chose it and um, she says she says it so beautifully she says you know she had an experience of, of, of being a displaced person of a refugee in fact her life you know the first 10 years of her life was was almost like running from one conflict to, uh, after another but she says it so beautifully she says oh, i cannot put hate in my heart that's what she learned from that experience. That's exactly what Tooth. I remember you saying that when we first of a podcast, and when I read that, I was like, I, was, I don't know. I, was I like, cannot like, put hate like, in my heart. No. Yeah. This is what I've always tried to say about the immigrant story, like versus colonialism or imperialism, where people are seen to dominate people. So we come here to share mm. and to help to make things better, but that's not the narrative that comes through. People no. see you as a a thief at best. No. Or parasite words. Yeah. Okay. So let's just think about that because that's important. Why? Now, one of the things we try to sort of unpick mm -hmm. are the sort of ad what we call them adages, anti-immigrant adages. Like they're sort of like forms of knowledge that become sort of proverbs, ways of understanding things. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So you know, how do you respond to? Well, the world is changing. It's strange. There are people here I don't understand. I'm fearful. Is that a natural disposition? I don't think it's a natural disposition. No. It's an educated disposition. <laughs> so I, I think that's partly what we've been trying to, to question as well. Because there's so many of these adages now, and they become like naturalised, self-evident truths. Uh -huh. But this is the thing, and this is what I tried to kind of convey at a meeting last week. 
when you try to contextualize these these phrase, phrase, phrases mm. or where they come from or try to understand to explain to people like there's a reason mm. why they came about or why you see see people in a certain way some people just don't care mm. so i gave an example of uh colonial kenya yeah and how basically it's only like in 1963 they become independent yeah yeah and how the british basically went through a process of like raping killing torturing mm. people and even that time and i'm like yeah you're, you're right like mm. for him that wasn't the issue well it's only not an issue if you if you if you create a kind of ideological armature that says well that's nothing to do with me I, and i think this, this is the problem i don't know how you how do you pierce that how do you well, re articulate the story of the immigrant to make sense in this context of its time well, you know, this is, you know, you asked me before we started recording, <laughs> <laughs> what is it that you think you're doing? Well, I, I think I'm clearer. I mean, what we're, what I'm, I guess I feel committed to, and, and I don't, I won't speak for Shamshir because I think he's got, we, there are lots of things that we share and there are also differences that we, we have differences of emphasis <laughs> or, or, you know, so I don't want to just sort of, I wouldn't speak for him anyway. Um, but I think in my own mind what I'm clearer about is to try and find a way to both describe and understand and make sense of that experience and that reality that you're describing about. You know, so um, you know, Sivananda who left us this past year actually um, had a great slogan I think, you know, we are here because you are there, were there, mm. actually not were, still are there, you know. <laughs> And I think that's a really important thing to constantly say, well, look, you know, that we have to be able to make explicit those traces because they're not from the past, actually, although the past is a place where they're sedimented. You know, they're, in, they're unfolding in the present. What I always think was always missing from that analysis, that makes sense, but within that is the context of power. Yeah. So if you don't have an analysis of power and understand the power, mm. that's what drives it. When they were there, they had power. Yeah. But when we over here, we, we don't have power. No. And this is what drives it all. And it's that fear of losing power mm. that's that's scaring people, that's saying yeah. from Sweden to yeah. Well, that's right, you see, because I think at the end of the book, and this was something I felt was really important to try and reckon with, you know, which is that sense that how does the, those sort of, the, the patterns of power that you're describing and that anxiety about loss of power and control. Well, how does that permeate down to, you know, you're not here from here, are you? You know, yeah. where are you really from? Or, you know, well, people are worried about change or, you know, this is a small island. We haven't really got space. How, what's the connection? Well, I think in a way, racism works through shaping those affects or feelings. It's a structure of feeling almost, mm. not in the, the way that Raymond Williams described it. But I think there's something about racism as a kind of nervous system, you know, a series of, of you know, affects of, of, of emotion, mm. of things that are spoken and things that are unspoken too. And, you know, the bit the bit in the book which I was most pleased about, so other people are less pleased with it, is where you know Nigel Farage is on the train <laughs> coming out of London Bridge. It's very, very anxious because as he passes, you know, New Cross. And, and even broccoli, he, he, he can't hear English being spoken, you know. And it's only when he gets past Grove Park that he suddenly feels like he's comfortable. Well, he was taken to issue on that topic because he said he felt uncomfortable with all the different languages speaking. But yeah. 
wife and two kids are German speakers. So they speak different languages well, and their second language is English, like most people in the UK and the schools that he talks about. So this is like the post-race condition, isn't it? Is where he's allowed to talk about languages if he's not referring to people that he's ra he's racializing. Exactly, who it stands in for. It stands yeah. in exactly for that. But but you know, I think the thing about it is, and my my point, which is not to to sort of call point the finger at him and mm. sort of you know, it is partly that it's being held accountable to those things. But well, how is that explained? How can what what sense can we make of that? Mm. You know. It isn't a state of nature, you know, and there's lots of people who would say, actually, it's completely natural for people to want to be around their own. Mm. Why, what, that's not racism, surely. Mm. It's just being comfortable, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's common sense. That's exactly. Well, this is, this is what I mean by that sense of, of a kind of nervous system almost, mm. or, a, you know, um, that common feeling. Mm. Um, but... You know why? Why? Why wouldn't the encounter with something that is um, a different language be be a, a matter of curiosity rather than fear? Mm -hmm. Why? Is it inevitable to, that it, it should be you should be fearful of something you don't understand? I think it's a definitely it's a learned behaviour, but it's the way it's kind of portrayed to you. It's so deep and instinctive that it seems natural. Yeah. So when people encounter different groups of people who don't look the same and how history is portrayed to them yeah. it's always seen as adversarial right so yeah. x meets y group y group meets wipes out x group yeah and that's how that's how we learn and that's how we've been learned so mm. this is so when i try to explain to you that's not how reality works yeah. it's not how it's never been we've always been ever since people could move to different places we have done sometimes we might end up fighting with each other but most mm. of the time we get along mm. But that's not how it's portrayed, and that's not how it's learned. Mm. And so when people experience it in real life, it's adversarial when we first meet, mm. black and white. Mm. Obviously, we're opposites. That's how, it's, that's how it seems. Yeah. Men and women yeah. always colliding, but that's not the actual reality of it. No, 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 no of course not. That's not that's not product of nature, it's a product yeah. of history. Mm. Yeah. I guess mm. that's my simple point. Mm. And so how do we find ways to explore that and open it up? And you're quite right, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't for a minute sit here and have front to say you're wrong, mm. because of course some people just will not, in a sort of steadfast way, open themselves to the possibility of thinking otherwise. Mm. They just will not. Those views are entrenched. They are, they are self-perpetuated. They're foreclosed. You know. And well, also. From a political point of view, they serve a purpose. Yeah, like, you know, it's furthering a particular agenda. Yeah. Like, you know, you talk a lot in the book about how the interests of capital mean that it's very expedient for Britain to have certain uh, relationships with particular countries. Like, you talk about the Philippines and yeah, how, exactly. you know, British mining and other kind of exploits have, like, caused, like, untold, like, environmental and political damage yeah. and makes parts of the country totally unlivable yeah. and that has a direct influence on people wanting to come here and then those people are stigmatised and racialised and end up mm. you know in like some of the most horrific like often as you know work in like people's homes are totally like unregulated like labour practices and you know they're totally dependent on their employer for like any kind of like kindness mm. or you know just like basic um human rights obviously from like they won't change their minds and mm. 
they like think like that in terms of like the people they come across from mm. a politicians' point of view. Yeah, it's very useful to have the sort of scapegoat of yeah. immigrants coming here because it like I don't think you say that pretty much in the book, but like it distracts attention mm. from what they're trying to do, which is exploit and extract from like other countries. Yeah. Mm. No, exactly. I wouldn't say so. You know, in the book you have this stat saying that the foreign born in the UK increased from 3.8 million in 1993 to 8.3 in mm. 2014. That's a large number, a large mm. increase. Yeah. So I think right now, at this moment, I can see it's only increasing because mm. more people being born, mm -hmm. more things happening around the world. Mm. So I think at this moment, we can, I think the way I see it, there's two ways we can go. Mm. We can retreat into the old, which, yeah. we, which we seem to be doing. Yeah. And, it's, and it recreates the same patterns that we've seen for hundreds of years. Yeah. Or we could try something new, but it's having. When I look at it in the, on the broader sweep of things, to try something new means entrenched power bases dealing with people who they see as or countries they see as inferior or exploited for a long mm. time as equals. Mm. As having to kind of fix these places and yeah. geopolitically, that doesn't make sense to people, especially mm. now if everyone's talking. Even someone, someone talking about the kind of peace of Westphalia sovereignty. Mm. So going back to sixteen forty eight mm -hmm. and saying we want to be sovereign nations. Just like we were in 1648, and everyone doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. When we've spent the last what 70 years being interconnected, and our daily lives, our mobile lives, are all interconnected. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, but we can change it if we wanted to. Yeah, and in a way, you know that that change has already arrived. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that it's very uneven. You know, that's partly what what you know. I guess there's lots of people we're arguing with in our mm -hmm. sort of our own way. Um, uh, one and some of the people that we're arguing with, or we started out arguing with, was that sort of wave of pronouncements of, around the death of multiculturalism, you know, which was very strong at the, in the early parts of us writing about this. In fact, some of the early things that we wrote were trying, that was the thing that we were most, uh, you know, exercised by in trying to write back against that. Did you, did you write in this, did you start writing or start researching the same year as Financial Crash? No, it was, it was just before, I think. Okay, yeah, just 2006. Before. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So that happened in the midst of, of doing this project. Yeah, so you said at the beginning it was kind of a turbulent time. I wasn't yeah. sure initially whether you meant in the lives of the people that you were working with or in kind of political life, because both of those things are true. Both really. of those things are really true. Both of those things are really true. So that, that was what was so difficult about doing the project because, you know, it's turbulent. There's a tremendous turbulence. What kind of sense are we making of this? You know, yeah. Where do we rest on, on, on any kind of position? I think the crash was one of the very big things that, which I'm trying to remember actually. So yeah, yeah. The ago. general election was 2005. Um, but um, so, and that was the, the first kind of chill of a different sort yeah. of moment mm. because everyone, the people that we were working with and listening to, and it was largely Shamshire was working with people on the ongoing. I should tell you, I should backtrack and tell you a little bit about how this project came yeah, to be please. in a minute. But but that was the first sign. I mean, this is pre, you know, pre the debate about U European integration or disintegration. So it's pre all of that. But no one's taken a, UKIP seriously. <laughs> it's the BNP you know, at the BNP time. It's still the BNP okay. at this stage, exactly. yeah. Exactly. So the, the, the sort of emergence of what we've come to think of as, the, as this kind of populist right-wing moment, that that was, you know, the, in a way, 
we, I think we were most exercised by some of the sort of uh, hypocrisy of New Labour around this. Yeah. You know, and particularly around the kind of question of, you know, on the one hand, uh, a version of sort of Blairite multiculturalism mm -hmm. at the same time as, you know, hardening, hardening the border, keeping mm -hmm. people out. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, come, we'll come, I'll explain that a little bit in a minute. But at the beginning, there was a lot of talk about, well, multiculturalism was a big bad, it was a bad idea. It's dead. Mm. Um, yet at the same time, and you pointed to this already, if you just listen carefully to how people live, just you know, just take a moment or, or, or just pay attention. You know, what we you, you so often see is the realization of people living in and across difference in a very banal, everyday, factual sort of way, you know, mm. that sort of fact of multicultural. And this is it, I've lived in North uh, East London all my life. Yeah. So this is what I know. Here's what you know. This is you don't know any different. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking when I was reading your book, first, I was thinking like the people you talk to, obviously because they're refugees or asylum seekers or just like you know migrants, they tend to live in like working class communities, mm. and when they come into contact with like middle class people, it tends yeah. to be like whatever in the coffee shop they're working mm. with, they work in the building they're security guards for that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, I I grew up on the other side of that mm. in like very elite space yeah. and I was thinking you know what was my relationship with that kind of multicultural growing up mm. and actually like elite spaces are no less diverse and no. the, yeah okay there are fewer black people fewer mm. brown people but like loads of people's parents at my school were not born in the UK yeah. and like lots of people have nannies who mm. are Filipino or mm. like look you know like and like I'm not saying Oh, you know, this is such a great because, as you say, like all these things are shot through with like racism and who does what jobs and who gets paid what. Obviously, yeah. is totally divided yeah. according to kind of like racist hierarchies. But yeah, the fact is, you don't you don't just have to come from like East London or a working class area of London to know that every, like all your interactions, people come from all over the place. Yeah, of and like, and I know, like, I think it does bear repeating because people who are at the forefront of yeah. these kinds of like like populist right-wing like movements yeah. people like David Goodfell or Nigel Farage whatever it was always said already said Nigel Farage's wife was German, German. Yeah, exactly. but David Goodhart you know like he will have he will come into contact with just as many people from just as many different backgrounds as yeah. anyone else and in order to see the world in the way that he's decided to present it mm. it involves like a very selective like yeah. being very selective in the evidence he presents because there's no other way that you mm. can interpret your daily life like that, I think. No, absolutely, that's right, yeah. That's absolutely right, there's no question about that. I mean, you know, I often think, and sometimes I say it in the context of teaching, or just in, in conversation, public conversation with people, so, you know, the whole anxiety about the death of multiculturalism um, is one thing. Um, but I just, you know, I, I say to people, even those who seem most anxious or fearful or what does Gasson Hodge call, you know, the worried, the worried, the worriers. I grew up with the worriers. Yeah. Well, I so just the, wor the worriers are the people that are furthest away from you guys in no. London. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but I say to even them, I say, look, okay, go into your kitchen, Yeah. look into your fridge, mm -hmm. look into your cupboards. Okay, you've done that. Now go and look at, you know, not even, you wouldn't look at your record collection now because of course you get that that day. It's on your Spotify. Go and look at your Spotify list. 
go and look at your playlist, yeah. you know, and tell me that that doesn't kind of connect with the fact of multiculture. It does. It's evident. It's everywhere. It doesn't make some of the kind of the grip, if you like, that these um, phobic and anxious feelings have any any less tight. But that is the fact of life. I think when I've seen that fear, it's so when the Bengalis came over in the late eighties, most of the white people moved, mm. and it's it's the fear that they that something's changing beyond their control. Yeah. So when buildings start to change, mm. or <clears throat> their kids come home and they start talking about Eid, mm. that fear that what they considered normal mm. is no longer normal. But they normal. deal, but they it is dealt with in a way like people still you, you always talk about how people get on particularly in yeah. your area that people have got on M my fear is the people that aren't in the areas of change and how riled up they are even though they are still not likely to be affected by in quotation change and difference well, how do we make sense of that i, I don't know it's, it's the it's the it's the pending it's the pending thing that they think they, it's going to come to them eventually it will get there um, and this is what i've seen with like the white flight when I go to when I speak to someone makes in Essex they're thinking we don't want like, to come like London well that's a narrative on the far right London's finished in their eyes and it's going to spread like a cancer this is mm. the future so the future used to be America with its race wars but now London star is what they call it this is going to come to you it's a no-go area as mm. the guys call it Mm. And London this, isn't finished, <laughs> but this is what they say. This is the no, I know they yeah. I know, I know, I know they say yeah. that. I mean, but I know, I know, people say that close by too. You <laughs> know. And you know that this is the the the, challenge, the difficult. You know, this is very mm. close. It's not doesn't happen just in the periphery or no. in, the, yeah. in the hinterlands of London. But there's there's that, that, so I think that's why these adages matter, <laughs> or to be able to make sense of them, or to try and you know on the one hand understand them first in order to critique them. Or to make a criticism the guys that said that so they feel that they the area no longer reflects them mm. and so they feel like they have no say no part in it. and some of it's down to the politics the local politics at the time mm. politicians have kind of abandoned people yeah i was just thinking my little sister wanted to come to say but hasn't been able to and someone who went to public school like boarding school mm. and went to cambridge with her and said Oh yeah, you know, he's a white guy, obviously. He was like, you know, I just don't really like living in London because I just feel like, you know, like my community's not really here anymore. It's sort of been driven out. <laughs> so that's what I mean, is that like these kinds of things, it's not just people living in areas like East London where like, you know, you no. have this constant sort of turnover of like this guy's a migrant to London as well. He's never lived in London before, his parents don't live in London. And he's yeah. arrived there as like by anyone's measure a very privileged white guy and that is the conclusion he's drawn and then he said to my sister do you feel your community is like you know established in oh, london yeah. she was like what community would that be That's like good 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 question <laughs> well said yeah. you know i mean that's we started out talking about the, the possibility of change and shift in a sort of you know, not a linear way exactly, but something moving forward. And the thing that I, th I fear about our moment is that what's happening is that there are like two destinies that are that are kind of locked and maybe they're stuck actually um, in our current moment. And, and one of those is in the movement towards a, what Paul Wilwer would call a more convivial sense of living in and across difference. Can you just define what it means by convivial? Well, 
it comes in a very simple way back down to the idea of living with mm-hmm. living with living in relation to you know and how those worlds that are made in relation to others that are that are about co-presence and coexisting doesn't have to be you know happy all the time doesn't have to be cheerful all the time it, you know it can, it can be about conflict as well as as agreement or harmony you know mm-hmm. dissonance as well as harmony but there's a deep sense of living with and co-presence and i do feel i know, sorry I, I do want you to finish with the other point but i yeah. do feel like and it may be because i i was younger and stuff but even the period that i grew up in I feel like there was a more of a sense of conviviality. Mm. It's conviviality. Does that make mm. sense? But yeah. am I, is it rose tinted for me? Like, I, I don't know. It feels like now there isn't that. Like, mm. it, I, it feels so far from that. Mm. But it, it, like, I grew up in, 90, I, I was born in 1992. Mm. I grew up, first of all, in London, then in Kent, and then in the West Midlands. And even though these spaces are very different to London, it did feel like things people lived alongside each other not not necessarily getting on as you say but it was there was an acceptance but i don't feel like that is there yeah we saw i would be suspicious about the idea that it's completely gone okay good only because (laughs) because it that it might just be happening somewhere that we're not connected to i mean that was what surprised me so much about i mean my favorite parts of this book um, are often those things which I was completely surprised by. That's good. Like, so the story of Ali's Wrench, which is my favourite poem, you know, where this guy who, you know, talk about, you know, the relationship between here and there, who, you know, get, it takes him a very long time to get to London to try and seek refuge. And, you know, he comes from a, a part that's not in Afghanistan, but it's, connect, it's connected to the hinterlands of Afghanistan that was referred to as Little London. You know, where one of the uh, director generals of the BBC lived and was born, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, part of that imperial class who, you know, yeah. basically. No, it's that's general. He was the guy who was director general during the Suez Crisis. That's right, yeah. yeah. Exactly. He was the soldier guy that has it, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, he, he's, I think his father was a soldier, yeah. Anyway. You know, the, the point is, though, okay, these two people. Yeah. You know, just take them as characters, you know. One is born there, and the other uh, is, is, is trying to kind of live in London. So, you know, the, the connection is that you don't have to, you have to just pay attention mm-hmm. and do a little bit of homework to be able to, to tell that, to, to, to make that connection. Anyway, so he, he finds himself in, in London, you know. He's, he, it takes an interminable amount of time for his claim for asylum to be settled. And he's waiting, living in this kind of condition of, of a kind of straitjacket. Mm. Life can't move really on, for, can't move forward and can't move back in this kind of dead time almost. Mm. Although it's never completely mortified, you know, but it's you know, waiting. And so much of, the, of what we sort of listened to and, and thought about was, well, what does that do for a person to live in that period of interminable waiting? Anyway. But um, in the midst of that time, he, you know, he discovers, he forms a very strong friendship with, with one of his neighbours, finds a load of, of um, scrap wood that was a bed, and decides, to think, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll make a bench for, for him to sit on, 
out in the shared space behind the house and for his neighbour to sell them too. Just, you know, in, in a way it became a sort of a symbol for us of how convivial life is made. Mm. It's made. Mm -hmm. And it's made through the tools of caring, of openness, mm -hmm. of, of, of connection, of being alongside. Mm. It's not in his garden. No. It's in a space which is alongside. Yeah. What's the other side? So we've got conviviality. Yeah. So that's. I mean, that's one side of, of our of our of our moment. I think those things. I think do endure. They may be endure in a million anonymous situations. We just try to try to capture some of that, which we feel is the part of mm. the reality of, of London life. The other side of this is a kind of encircled, embattled sense. Of, of, of an attachment to Britain's past that is deeply codified in terms of race and racism, that's a cycle that keeps re re reproducing itself, you know, and that is is almost um, steadfastly uh, impervious mm. to change from outside. This is the point I was trying to unpack, because I kind of see the link between the two. Yeah. By trying to get them to understand more about their past, not in a way that's presented to them in textbooks, in a way that presents them mm. the entire narrative of what's yeah. happened. So, for example, if you ask most English people about the, the troubles in Northern Ireland, they couldn't tell you anything about Northern Ireland, which is shocking. Mm -hmm. Or you ask them anything, like I said, one of my friends reduced it all down to two world wars or one world cup. Well, that's like, the, yeah, yeah. That's, that's like an England fan. Yeah. yeah. So you try to get them to understand the kind of breadth of their history and it's not yeah. so, so how it impacts on them now. Yeah. So when I said to them, like, to give them some context, like the scramble of Africa only took like, what, 30 odd years mm -hmm. for Europe to divide the whole continent. Yeah. So do you understand the imp how recent that is mm. and why that has an impact on here and mm. why we do certain things or how, our relationship with that country mm. or why someone might feel a certain way to, like, towards Winston Churchill? He's not just a, he's not just a wartime hero, but he's all, he all, he was also something else. But that doesn't take away from what he achieved. Mm -hmm. I suppose the thing that we have is like people like Kent or Hugh achieve a lot, but deeply racist. Mm. But that doesn't take away from what they achieved. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to say to someone: if you see someone in, in their totality, then you can have a better well, you can derive a better opinion from mm -hmm. them. And you, you see the world that we're in slightly differently. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of you too, sorry, because I was listening to um, this French podcast called Keep to Hearts. It's about like French politics and culture and stuff. They had, I can't remember who the academic was on it, talking about basically what we're talking about now, but from a French perspective. And it was really interesting because she was basically saying exactly the same thing that like French view of history is like really selective mm -hmm. and totally ignores the kind of like colonial like implications while well, like you know continuing like colonial relationships um that france has but also like the history of people of color in france and the example she gave was that france has this very particular history of like the resistance during mm. world war ii and stuff and how you know charles de gaulle like maintains his kind of government from the uk and she was like but what no one ever talks about is who actually liberated france was like people of color from the french colonies who were in the french army and I was like, I had, I had no idea. I just like, I just didn't know that. I never, mm. I never really thought about it because all I thought was like, oh yeah, like D-Day, like, mm. I don't know, Dunkirk, like all yeah. that kind of stuff. That is such a huge omission mm. <laughs> from like a common sense understanding of how the Second World War. So even if like you do take it back to, you're right, like 
your own if you only think about like the second world war as that kind of mm -hmm. very like hackneyed story of like little islands or yeah. like you know those few french resistance fighters fighting the nazis then like you're totally missing most mm. of the story and this is why i get upset with things like black history month you present it as something separate when it's our story mm. all of our stories and once you present me something different you can kind of box me off and then not mm. think about me for another year or mm. ever at all no and i think there's some you know i think i hear what you say when you say that you know I, I, and i think that's that's the risk. Yeah. That's I, the real risk. Because I want to surround to present people that I, I've always been here in some capacity. Me, as in, in the immigrant story, always been here in some capacity. And it reflects in the buildings, the stories that have been told in, in every aspect. So whether it's been under colonial or part of the Roman Empire or whatever it will be, mm. or from the kind of escaping the American Revolution, there's always been immigrants here. Mm. Always. And this is the nature of things. But once you start separating that story out into like parcels, it's, it's not how it is. It's not how it ever was. Mm. Well, it comes back to the question you asked me at the very beginning, which is, well, what is it you're up to? What are you trying to do? What is this all about? It's about that. It's about trying to find a way to open up a different mode of understanding, as well as a different kind of attentiveness to the world that isn't kind of locked down in the ways that that you've been, you've all been, all been describing in different, in different sort of inflections. You know, um, now that might sound like a very weak thing to try and do, you know, but I, I just, I, I still have, I still believe in that as a, as a, um, as a, pro as a project, as something that's important, as a value. And if it's only a value to a half a dozen people who think, blimey, I suddenly see myself differently now, or I see something in the life that is in the pages of this book. That resonates with me and makes me feel less isolated and alone in this condition. And if you know that's enough for me to be honest with you. And so at this stage, it's radical. Even if it's like twenty people that like that are on that other yeah. side of things that now, after this book and your work, can think differently about it. That is such a big thing in this moment we're in. I think at well, the moment, I, I, I feel like all policymakers, no matter what area they work in, should have to read it. Like, well, that's a wonderful thing for you to say, and I'll tell you, that's a huge compliment. But you know, in a way, it's it's trying to um, it's trying to use that kind this kind of uh, practice, if you like, and way of, of telling and showing to tr to try and unsettle some of those things which are taken to be so self evident. You know, I think with like with things like climate change and mass migrations, the world's changing in ways that we haven't seen for a long time. Yeah, but use so it's, we're going to have to think differently to solve these new problems that are. Approaching, yeah. So, going back to kind of these old embattled ways, it's not going to work. No, I don't think it is because climate change affects resources in space, and so does migration. Yeah. So we would need to kind of we can't be super racist. We can't think of like European hegemony anymore because it's all different. Yeah. And no, I think that's right. So it will take kind of like a reconstitution, a reconstituting of even the world order. Mm. So like something like nuclear after nineteen forty-five mm. to think how do how do we deal with these new problems? coming and they come in they're just they're not far they're mm. not really that far it's there now actually yeah yeah um so like shift our focus slightly i was really impressed in the book and how you how you tell the stories of like a i was about to say a diverse group of people but like you know what i mean like everyone mm. has like very particular experiences and mm. their experience 
experience in wherever they started their journey and then mm. what they're doing in London and how their lives are sort of unfolding in the moment that you are working with them. I wonder how you kind of approach telling those stories mm. because I think that's something I thought a lot. I went to see um, the play The Jungle. Yeah. One of the things that really bothered me about it was that it's said by Joe and like even though these stories are being told of like people who went to, who were from yeah. the Calais jungle trying to get to the UK yeah. I felt like even by just saying like this play is by us yeah. really like took away from that and I was speaking to one of the playwrights yeah. and he was like oh well I think you know in the play we're trying to kind of challenge that perception and I was like yeah, yeah. but you're the ones getting all the credit yeah exactly um so yeah I wonder how you kind of dealt with yeah that. I mean it's something we <laughs> We had a lot of fun trying to do things differently um, and then ha had to confront some of the complexities of trying to do things differently. So, you know, in a way, uh, both Shamshu and I didn't want to pretend there was a kind of flat um, attribution of, of credit. Everyone was doing the same because we weren't all doing the same. So Shamshu and I were trying in our kind of tussle, tug of war. I should tell you a bit more about that. Um, just because I think it is interesting and it reveals all kinds of things in trying to make this thing which would hang together. But of course, the people that we were working with, given you know we wanted a more sociable version of, of what research could be, were contributing massively, not just in terms of their stories, but they're making sense of what those stories meant, you know. So, you know, great that you have Charlene speaking at the beginning. So what did that look like? Well, we would get together and we would listen, we would write things down, and then we would try and um, circle them back and have another conversation. Um, and Charlene in that podcast talks a little bit about that in the places where we had those conversations. The article was actually read by students in California okay. um, before its publication. Yeah. Don't you remember this part was of the story? It was before the publication. I remember you said that it was read. I couldn't remember it was before. It was before, before it was actually published. Yeah. And you know, there was a group of students there who, you know, what students do, what students do. Yeah. Yeah, they've got to give a presentation on this paper. Of course. So what do they do? They go online. They go online. That's what I do. That's what you do. <laughs> So they go online and they Google all the names that are on the paper, yeah. including yours. Um, which, I, you know, it's a kind of thing we shouldn't be surprised by. But what, was in, what I was genuinely surprised by was the reaction of the students, because we then had a kind of series of email correspondence with them. And they said that, you know, actually being able to find out the fact, the fact that, you know, you have... Your poetry being read on YouTube clips and yeah. and you and your blog. I don't know if they found your blog. Your blog might not have been up by then. Yeah. But but somehow, you know, doing that kind of the Google work of, of finding out yeah. what else is actually known about the person being given this author, or, you know, who's the author, meant that somehow the, the the account in the article came to life in a different way. Well, of course it would. Just think, if I had been anonymous, they wouldn't have been able to find me. And then it wouldn't have been as real as it was. Just a thought. But yeah, I mean, for me, when I read stuff that's been written by people, if I go to find it, it makes it better for me because I can relate to it more if I find somebody that's real and not just an assumed name in a book. You know, so... I do connect with these people that went off and found me and mm. got bits of my clip on YouTube. Mm. 
Yeah, I was a bit proud of myself, actually. We wanted to think of, well, how can we then honour that process and represent it? So that's where we came up with the idea of, you know, authorship with the participants for those who wanted and were happy to be credited in that way. So it has the actual names of some of the participants, not all of them, but some of them, the ones we offered it to as many as we could, not everybody wanted to embrace it. And one of the things that I thought, God, you should have seen that coming, it's so straightforward. You know, you could be the owner of your own name if you feel like your status and your position exactly. is secure. I bet it was I bet that was another part of like the research, people feeling nervous about surveillance yeah. and being noticed. Like that's yeah. And that's one of the things you talk about, isn't it? That like a research interview can sound awfully like an immigration. Well, you know, interview. we we Shamshu and both Shamshu and I had experiences like that where you thought, well, actually, starting to fall into the, a pattern that's already well worn um, and that's where we sort of decided well we've got to try and figure out a different way of working together on, on this or you know or just having a different and you know there's a couple of really wonderful moments when we thought actually yeah if you change if you step out of that say okay we're not gonna I'm not gonna sit down and interview you and get my tape recorder out or my voice recorders are the same now but you know create things whether it's photographs or poems or scrapbooks it changes the, the, the sense of, of what's revealed and what, what can be the sort of the, fo the, the focus or the thing around which we try and understand what's what an experience, say. Yeah, and I thought like there's a moment where Ma Madushi, yeah. Madushi is yeah. he the one who's in the Copenhagen? Yeah, that's project? right, yeah. You say something like, you know, he was dealing with all this like horrendous trauma and couldn't really talk about it. So you gave him a camera yeah. and he went off and took photos. Yeah. And then from the photos was able to be like, oh, well, this has this meaning yeah. for me. And I don't know, I just thought like what a sensitive and kind of like amazing way of allowing someone to speak about something that is otherwise very hard to put into words. Yeah. How did you think of doing that? Doing that like that? <laughs> it was sham He said, well, could we get some of these cameras and give them out? Oh, and I thought for a minute like, yeah, why can't we do that? We had a bunch of them, you know, and, they, yeah. and, and at this moment as well, this is before really, you know, phones become the multimodal devices that they are now. Of course, yeah, otherwise. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, you'd just, just be like, you just gave me some and, and, you know, there are some phone, phone pictures from later on, in mm -hmm. you know, since on period. So, yeah, that's a good idea, let's do that. So that's what we did do, you know. Um, and, but, so sometimes it was like, okay, why don't we try that? Let's try that. This isn't working or that this is working in a way that doesn't feel right or that's jarring. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Shamsha's idea. I, I, actually, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm almost certain it was. I remember him sitting in, in, um, in my office here and he was saying, well, why don't we just, just give out these cameras? And you know, at the time, they were like 350 pound cameras each. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> they don't come back. Well, they don't come back. It's a trust exercise. Yeah, and it, it was actually, it was. It was. It was absolutely that's what it was. And I'm actually, there's something really like giving someone like that equipment at that yeah. time and being like, yeah, you go do this, then yeah. come back to yeah, us. Exactly. Like that's yeah. a that's something that's building rapport there. Actually. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it, 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 I, you know, I'd thought about it in different different contexts about you know the idea of exchange. Yeah, exchange. Yeah. What's ha what's being exchanged? What's passing between us? And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in the way that you've just made me think about it. But yeah, I think that probably was. Mm. Um, and um, so yeah, that, that's how it, it started. And then it started to really develop a life of its own. Mm. And we thought, oh, okay, let's go with this. This is really, this is producing things that we wouldn't 
we wouldn't have otherwise even thought about, let alone mm. um, uh, asked about. So, you know, because in a way, the thing is, you know, you were saying before about how the interview is haunted and you're hostage to other ways in which that's used. And also our own understandings are, are hostage, sometimes hostage to that too. So, you know, well, what should we ask about? Answering that question to yourself is both, you know, an opportunity, but also a risk of being of asking the wrong questions, you know, um, or of confining what what's of interest in a, in too narrow a way. I feel like the only bit I haven't read is the afterwards. Oh yeah. Because I started reading it this morning, and I just thought um, I had a really intense week of doing research interviews. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this feels like almost too close to home right yeah, now because well, I feel like I like when you're in that moment with someone where they're telling you like really like personal and intimate things or like you know as much as they're willing to share with you in that moment. Yeah. And then you, they stop talking and yeah. there's a pause or you've got to think of what to ask next. Yeah. I find that moment really hard because yeah. you're like the next words I choose <laughs> like you can shut down or open up or like you know stumble on something and you know when I transcribe and sit back and listen to those interviews I always think oh it sounds fine. And it almost, like, you forget about that struggle in that moment to be like, how do I react to this person in a way that's, like, sensitive and appropriate? Mm. That's really hard. Mm. Like, there's no, there's no, no, and, like, you don't really know the person very well, if at all. Yeah. Can you be, can you be sensitive uh, sensitive to someone when you don't really know them? Yeah. Whatever whatever they say, you you say the wrong thing. Yeah, you see, I think it is hard when you don't, you know, that's why I think the ongoing, it comes back to the lesson from ethnography, you know, the sort of single encounter research moment, I, I think is you're, you're at the most risk yeah. of, of walking away as much of a stranger as, as you were when you walked in the room or sat at the table, you know. Um, and there are things that you 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 can never know about a person actually, you know, and that's it's a conceit to think that you can, I think, yeah. you know, but at the same time, you know, that developing a relationship over a period of time means that you're kind of witness to the unfolding nature of that person's life and what they'll share with you. Given the scope of say, like a PhD, yeah. you're not afforded that at the time. No, you're not. So, in our experience, then it will be kind of that. The kind of experience that you described just now, you, you, you're in, mm. and you're out, and to me, that that doesn't feel right either. No. Well, I think there are ways of, like, hopefully none of us will take ten years to finish <laughs> our PhDs, which is how long this took you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, I'm trying to avoid it to a certain extent by having multiple interviews with the same yeah. person. Like, no, you know, I like you can. it's not much, but like I think. Like in my masters, I just had like one interview with each person, and the difference between the kinds of ways in which people talk to you in a second interview or a third interview yeah. is huge. And I think like with what you're doing too, like going to <clears throat> doing an ethnography of a place where you live, like you do have the luxury in a way of being able to spend more time in places. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think I just get, always get feeling like I think when people do research, there's a tendency of them to you speak to the people and then it's like a job like you want to leave a job mm. they're friends for a while while you're there and you just leave them yeah mm. ring me you don't ring them mm. coming out no 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 I know, my first, one of my classes <laughs> in the essay was like 
can you organise a party at the MP so that I can meet everyone else who's been part of it? And I was like, well, I will organise something, but I can't make everyone come. <laughs> no, no, you try. You know, you try. I mean, it's difficult. Sometimes there's possibilities of this, sometimes they're not, you yeah. know. Or sometimes you think that you're going to be able to do those kinds of things and then the, possibility, the, the, the practicalities get beyond what you can do. And so, no, I think that's right. I think, but I do think one of the opportunities that we have and we tried this, how much we succeed, you know, remains to be seen, to be honest truth. Um, but you can then involve the people that you're trying to, to both honour and understand uh, in an ongoing circuit, you know. Um, what about, I mean, I guess following on from Tiso's point, in this research, working with people that are seeking asylum, mm. that are really relying on the state being gentle with mm. them. Yeah, like, which they are not. Of which they are not. Um, and people that are dealing with structural racism in their lives, like waiting, you yeah. spoke, spoke a lot about yeah, like, yeah. waiting for forms, waiting to find out if they're able to stay. What was it like researching and speaking to these people, knowing that you can't do anything mm. to help them? I, I think, you know, that there's a, many things I'm sure have different experience of this. But there, there were definitely. I don't think there was. There were. There were moments when you had that kind of sense of total helplessness. You know, yeah. Sense. And is this the right thing to be doing? To be filling that dead time with, you know, over a few coffees in a coffee shop somewhere in Lancaster, um, and talking about things. And I don't have a good answer for you. No. I don't have a good answer for you, but I mean, I, I felt that sometimes, and the people that, the person I'm thinking of specifically, whose life did change, actually, um, but we had many experiences like that, um, you know, there was something about um, that space of dialogue, which wasn't just mining, mm. you know, people talking about the unfolding life that was he was experiencing in that moment. And you know the frustrations between being sort of stuck on the one, on the one hand, you know, waiting for waiting for life to sort of to move, mm. and that sort of strange combination of both of those things. Um, the irony of the situation was that in that this particular case of, of the person I'm thinking about, he we'd been talking a lot, so the actual conversations had documented. That experience of waiting, mm. which were completely against the way in which the Home Office was sending him messages about, you know, his claim and so on. And I did think at one point that, you know, in, in a sense, the research record could be a parallel account to the one that was being sent in the, la the latest, you know, the latest letter from from the Home Office about the state of his his uh, his immigration case. Mm. It never came to that. Um, but yeah, no, I think there was there, there in those moments you are faced with powerlessness and, and frustration and questions about well, what should I be doing this at all? Yeah. And, and sometimes as well, I, I think that, that it was difficult, really, facing up honestly to the fact that you know you start off working, you work over a long period of time, and you can't anticipate what's going to unfold. Mm. And there were a few moments as well when that was, you know, coming, having to face the, it's the real brutal, the brutality of the system actually. Yeah. I think that's one of the things. It's despicable. That, that it was really revealed or was learned, uh, was learned I think. Really. 
you know, not that he didn't understand it in an abstract level, but sitting in the same across the table, you know, from from what it feels like to be living through that condition. Yeah, it's like something else. Speaking to someone that is literally experienced on a day to day basis state violence mm. like that. Yeah. Is must have been really difficult. Well, well it wasn't yeah. It's disturbing to read. So mm. I can't really imagine. Well, what you know, with things as well, that, it was diff- one of the things. The challenges was okay. Well, what do you include to try and convey that? And there were some things that that, um, that we we didn't include actually, um, partly because of whether that was too um, was making the, the the person who who shared that more vulnerable. Yeah. 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 By writing it down yeah. and being a book, and then being in a book, not well, yeah, it would be published. Yeah, it would be a published account that would be there mm-hmm. for as long as there are published accounts. Um, so yeah, that was one of the things which we we, we, we sort of thought about a lot, and, and, back, also, and went back and forth between us a lot. The thing I thought was, you know, it's you also, I guess. I don't think the book does it at all quite the opposite. You don't want to present it as kind of, you know, the posters that they have in like churches of like, give money so that we can help people in like the Gambia. You know, like you don't want to present people as like sort of pathetic victims. And like to kind of get that sort of like, I don't know, people's coins in a basket. You're making a political point. And I think there's one story which I found which you know the the woman who comes from the Philippines and is sexually exploited and then ends up in prison and then that affects her asylum claim and all this kind of stuff and it's like it's just it's so disturbing the way all of that comes about but I didn't feel at any moment like there's no like pity in the way you write it or there's no like and you know you allow her account to kind of just like speak for itself in a way I thought was really really powerful yeah well thank you yeah and that was what we were trying we were aiming for you know that was what we were aiming for but because you know compassion can be so wounding you know there's a lot of wounding compassion being circulated and you know in a way we wanted to care for and and be attentive to to those experiences without you know that attentiveness to fall into a wounding form of compassion, because you know those many of those people are powerful agents in the yeah. world, you know, and uh, uh, many of whom you know are funny, have sense a sense of things, you know, are not some sort of you know in they're not inert victims which which you know compassion should be heaped upon, you know. I think understanding and 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 a sense of Taking in that life in its complexity what, is what we were we were trying to do, you know, and saying, well, actually, yeah, people, that's a, her story is an extraordinary story, and you know, when she showed me her tattoo, which is on the in, in in the book, you know, there was something about that that sort of defiance and and, it, and also the beauty in it actually across those wounds, um, you know, uh, that that's just seemed so powerful. So it's a tattoo that's across a series of scars that you can you can mm. see, which is you know in a way 
that's other symbol of, of those gendered forms of violence and the state violence, mm -hmm. which kind of mutually reinforce themselves. You know, so she ends up getting away from the control of the men that she was um, being abused by, um, mm. by being arrested by the police, can you imagine, sentenced to a prison set to, to a time in, in jail, but doesn't report the people that had also been abusing her because that was a way of breaking through mm. and breaking away. Yeah. Right, yeah, that's really cool. This is like the kind of strength of immigrants. So they're not, we're not, they're not passive victims at all. They've been through war zones. They've been exploited by crime syndicates. Mm. And then when they come over here, they quite often tolerate low pay, exploited, and but yet they get on, and they always get on. And this is like I said, this has always been the story. So whether you're fleeing Huguenot France mm. or whether you're coming from Bangladesh, this has always been the story. But it's trying to get people to understand that. I'm not coming here to rule you. I'm coming to participate and contribute. Mm. But that's not how the elite or the, or the politicians, politicians describe that process. Mm. So when I growing up, I always thought that the black presence in Britain was 1948 onwards. Because mm. that's a narrative that's given to you. Yeah. And that's what's worrying. It's never presented as it really is. Mm. This kind of continuum of people going back and forward and back and forward. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's common sense. People always, as soon as you can walk and your, your curiosity, you want to go somewhere else. And that, that's the, it's common sense, but people don't see that. Mm. And that's what that's the most frustrating thing to me. Mm. No one, no one, people just move around. These borders that we've put in place are imaginary. They're just lines that someone decided that this is this and that's that. But that's not... And they have real world implications for mm. people like your mm. participants and the lack of emphasis on that human experience, which is what I think you do so brilliantly mm. in this book, is I think what's Tiso saying is why we are we are. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that again it comes back to what what I mean I think Shamsha and I definitely share this that we felt that that ref that human experience was something we were trying to both attend to mm -hmm. um, and give an account of. Um, as a as a as an opportunity for learning, actually, and understanding, mm. you know, mm. um, I think that is what at the heart of what we were trying to do was to say, okay, let's see what can be learned from these uh, this process of, of of attentiveness, you know. Mm. Uh, it sounds a bit crap when I say it like that. That is what I, it does though. I mean, I, you know, in a way it is, it seems very flimsy, but actually, you know, it, it is that kind of sense of, you know, well, in the abundance of water, the fool is thirdly, thirsty. You know, in the abundance of water, the fool is thirsty. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of foolishness in our time. And there's an abundance of, of opportunities to understand things differently. This is I, I kind of said like, to my friends that like, you have the internet in your hand, the, the whole of the human history and the information in your hand, but you will choose to look at, I don't know, a cat, mm. someone's dinner. And I said like, you, you, have the, you have the ability to move past this. So I, for example, Brexit, I said, what do you know about the EU? Nothing. Did you even research it? No, but you've got the opportunity yeah. in your hand. And I don't understand, well, why is that? Because it goes against everything you're taught. So when you're at school, you're taught to, 
not about just your eight like history and maths. You sort of apply your mind to reason. Mm. So I always kind of think of Kant in like to dare to know, mm. to know everything. Sure, but people don't, and that's what's shocking. Now. So mm. people will, will, I can happily quite tell someone get us flat. Some people will believe me, mm. and they have that that kind of when the right talking about the decline of Western civilization and the things that are important to them, like. I think what's important to us is the Enlightenment. Mm. They, they've lost that. They gave that away. Mm. They became complacent over it. It makes me think of that. I mean, I was just talking earlier to a friend. Um, we were we were we weren't really laughing in, in a sense of funny ha ha more in a sort of desperate, a desperate, <laughs> yeah. a desperate laugh. You know that fantastic quote from Einstein. He says, "You know, what's the difference between ignorance and genius?" The difference between ignorance and genius is that genius understands it has limits. Ignorance mm. has no limits. Mm. And I think we live through a terrifying time oh, of ignorance yeah. and certainty. Yeah, definitely. Ignorance and certainty. Sometimes those two things are, are, are woven into each other. You know, and in, in a way, um, I still think that's what's valuable about the work that you're all doing and the sort of shared uh, craft of trying to understand things, you know. Um, wouldn't make a claim for genius, um, but I would make a claim for the importance of, 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 of doubt and of attentiveness. You know, that is something that I, I, I feel more convinced. It doesn't mean because you doubt doesn't mean you don't have a view of things, but you haven't foreclosed <clears throat> that um, openness to trying to understand. Yeah, you know. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantelle, Saskia and Tiso and our special guest Les back. Um, we'll be back every week at the moment. Um, so don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks very much for having me here. Thanks for <laughs> <laughs>